Kia ora tato. This week's recording is from our homes in Tamaki Makoto, Aotearoa, New Zealand. As such, we would like to pay our respects to Ngāti Whātua, on whose lands we are recording today. We at The Familiar Strange also want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we usually record and edit this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Joe Clifford, your Familiar Strangers today. Today's podcast is brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Our guest today is Susanna Chunker, an Associate Professor in the Anthropology Department at the University of Auckland. Susanna received her PhD from Princeton before moving to Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2003. Her research has been undertaken in Fiji, the Czech Republic, and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Ben is the author of three books, State of Suffering, Political Violence and Community Survival in Fiji, One Blue Child, Asthma, Responsibility and the Politics of Global Health, and her 2020 book, Traversing, Embodied Life Worlds in the Czech Republic. The co-author of Young Woman of Prague with Elena Heitlinger and has edited five other books. Her many articles and chapters cover topics such as embodiment, state-citizen relations, subjectivity, responsibility, states of emergency, COVID-19 responses, and the politics of medicine. I spoke with Susanna about her upcoming role as editor-in-chief of American Ethnologist, her 2020 book, Reversing, Embodied Life Worlds in the Czech Republic, and how anthropologists might approach the current COVID lockdown measures being forced in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and various other parts of the world. Just a quick note on the audio quality for this week. We had a bit of trouble during the recording process, but we're working on it. So here it is, my interview with Susanna Trunka. Welcome to The Familiar Strange, Susanna. You have recently been announced as the next Editor-in-Chief of American Ethnologists from 2022 to 2026, along with Associate Editors Jesse Grayman, also at the University of Auckland, and Lisa Wynn from Macquarie University. Congratulations. Can you tell us about your plans as Editor of the Journal and the direction you would like to take the journal in? Well, I'm deeply honoured to have that role. And as you mentioned, I'm delighted to have two associate editors on board as well. And we've been thinking, we're quite lucky because we were announced as the editors uh, recently, but we don't actually take over, as you said, until sometime in 2022. So we have quite a bit of lead time to think through our plans for the journal. One of the obvious things is that the journal is going to have its 50th birthday in 2024. And we want to mark that and we want to use that as an occasion to think about the history of the journal, of anthropology more generally, of ethnography, and also as notable from the title, American Ethnologist. So what is this ethnology? And is that even a concept that's useful today? And what what can we do with it? One of the things that I've been quite interested in, because my work in Central and Eastern Europe is the history of the idea of ethnology in a very political and politicized sense, I should say. Ethnology is a way of trying to understand a particular cultural, historical grouping of people and what is politically at stake in naming a group as such. And I think those are really old questions, but they're also very relevant questions today. I'd like to use this anniversary to look at questions of ethnology, ethnography and what is ethnographic practice in terms of looking beyond 
the anniversary of the journal looking more across the years that we're going to be editing it, it seemed to us that one of the pressing questions today is around misinformation and how we know whether scientific enterprise or other forms of scholarship and scholarly endeavor are legitimate. So one of our thoughts was that we would have a running feature highlighting anthropological scholarship that probes these questions of what actually is scholarship and how do we deem something to be a contribution to knowledge. And of course, I assume there's going to be lots of different perspectives on that. And that's part of what we want to uh, foreground in the journal, different ways. And you know, as an editor, you're immediately thrust into that position of making those decisions around, you know, not just is this a good piece of writing, does this argument hold together, will readers understand it, but is this scholarly, is this scholarship, and what actually constitutes valid anthropological ethnographic endeavor? And again, I think there's many different answers to that. I'm not here to try and promote a particular line. I'm more interested in trying to explore how we think about that today, how we've thought about that in the past, and perhaps what directions we might take that in the future. And then the third thing, if your listeners are aware, American Ethnologist within the last several years has put together special forums a feature, which is a bit like a special collection or a, an edited section that focuses on a particular theme. And so we have ideas on where we'd like to take that. None of it is, is certain yet, but some of our thinking has been around a special forum on states of emergency, because it seems kind of dead obvious that there's a lot of work being done in rethinking how we consider states of emergency, given the global pandemic. So it'd be really interesting to get voices from different parts of the world, from different kind of aspects of anthropological work, to shed some light on these issues. So much of that's obviously interrelated, this idea of misinformation and a few years ago, the idea of post-truth being a sort of common term that was thrown around and how that lines up with what we consider scientific and how publics interact and sometimes doubt and push back against scientific consensus, pushing forward, I suppose, alternative ideas against or engaging with them in different ways and repurposing them. Absolutely. So then the question for me is, what can we as anthropologists add to that debate? How might we see it differently in terms of our understandings, both of kind of, you know, how we as practitioners, you know, it's, it's an interesting debate you have, I often have with students when they're doing an MA or something, they're saying, well, how many interviews, how much participant observation is enough? You know, and it's always like, well, there's not a kind of magic number but in a sense, there is, because if you did an MA based on, say, three interviews, that's quite different than if you do it based on 30 interviews. So I think we do kind of within the discipline have some ideas about what constitutes rigorous scholarship. But we don't and, and I'm not plugging that we should do this, but we don't kind of codify it, which leaves a lot of space for interpretation. But what does anthropology, based on those experiences, as well as, as you mentioned, our understanding of different publics and the way different publics read or interpret information? And so we have our own practices, but then we also look at meaning making amongst different constituencies. From those two kind of points of engagement, what can we add to these debates around misinformation? 
I think that's a really fascinating thing. One of the other things that sort of interests me about the uh, next set of editors with yourself as editor-in-chief is that the entire editorial team will be from universities in Australia and New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand. We're really pleased with that. Can I, can I say that? We're quite <laughs> proud of that accomplishment. Um, as someone who's spent his time studying in Australian and New Zealand universities, I am as well, and I think it's going to be really great. One of the things you brought up in your discussion of what the team has planned is this idea of politics of naming. And I was wondering if you could give some perhaps some clues in how a perspective from, I guess, the Southern Hemisphere might differ around questions of politics from naming is from maybe those that are happening in North America. I think we could even look at it more globally in terms of these questions of decolonization and what exactly does decolonization mean based on where you are geographically. Because I think it's happening not, not just in North America, not just in Europe, not just here, but more widely. My suspicion, and this is again, we were thinking, we were talking with Lisa and Jesse about the possibility of doing perhaps something around this within the journal. Our suspicion is that it looks quite different if you're located in a Middle Eastern context or a Central European context or a, you know, Aotearoa Australian contexts. So that is one of the things we'd we'd like to unpack. In terms of being based in the Southern Hemisphere, I do think we have a different sense of the lineage of scholarship. So I was a graduate student in the United States. I was working at that time, my PhD work was in Fiji, and it was looking at ethnic violence. So I would have said I was quite kind of trying to stay up to date with those debates around scholarship and scholarly voices and who gets represented and who doesn't. And I landed the job here at University of Auckland. And I remember arriving, this was 18 years ago, I remember arriving and going to an academic conference and people were talking about white settler societies. And I said, what's that? And I'd never heard the term. That doesn't mean that it wasn't out there in American discourse, but it wasn't sort of as prominent as it is here. So I do think that kind of work of attempting to decolonize scholarship, and I'm in no way saying that we've completed it because we certainly haven't, but the debates around positionality, whose voices are being heard, whose voices, um, going back to questions of legitimacy and authority, whose voices are given more weight was being done here earlier and differently taken more seriously, perhaps, than in some other places. So I do think that's something that locating the journal and I think of, I should say, I think of American Ethnologist as a global journal. It has a global readership. It might be called American Ethnologist. It might be published by the American Anthropology Association. But that is one of the world's largest, world's largest anthropological association. It's not just there for Americans. So I do think that locating American Ethnologist in the Southern Hemisphere is going to bring a different set of lineages of scholarship and ways of thinking about positionality and authority and voice in academic research. So you raised the idea of positionality in your part of your answer there, which is very interesting because that's something that comes up, I think, repeatedly in your 2020 book, Transversing, the full title of which is Transversing Embodied Lifeholds in the Czech Republic. And this book is built from very extended ethnographic project that you've been undertaking in the Czech Republic over many years. It examines our experience of the world 
and the impact that that has on forming us as people. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us about your own personal experience with the Czech Republic as someone who has obviously lived a large part of their life in the United States and Aotearoa, New Zealand, and being back and forth, and sort of how this has impacted on your ethnographic data collection and what you were hoping to find in the Czech Republic. It shaped all of it from the beginning. <laughs> I mean, I think as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants, it really forms your life in very specific, particular ways. And I do think there's something different about immigrant experience from families that feel like whether it's actually possible or not, but you have a sense that you can go back. Well, until 89, there was a strong sense in my family, even though I did go on a short visit in 87, but there was a strong sense of you can't go back. To use the word traversing, there was no sense of moving back and forth. Like my family had left, they left in 68 and that was done and finished. And there was a sense up until 89 that we would live our lives out without seeing the rest of our family, without ever having the opportunity to go back. As I said, I was very lucky when I was 16, I was able to go for about a week or 10 days, a very short trip that my parents organized for me. So I got to experience some very brief moments of being there before the 89 revolution. But in terms of how it shaped me and my thinking, I grew up in a household where my mother was much more confident uh, speaking Czech than speaking English. So, you know, the sort of domestic language was Czech. I, when I first went back to Prague, I say went back, but I wasn't born there. So, you know, even the sort of, you know, familial discourse was of this is where we're from and, you know, this is where you go back to, this is home. When I first went, I remember being shocked by the, you know, completely different surroundings, but also in some sense things were familiar. Like my mother had spoken about the city so much that I had a picture or many different pictures of it in my head. And I think that really informed the research that I've done there in different periods. But one of the things about this book that's quite different than Young Women of Prague, which I wrote with Elena Heitlinger, or the asthma book, both of those felt like projects. Like I think you used the word ethnographic project. Both of those felt to me like this is the beginning of a project, I'm doing this research, finish the research, and now I'm going to write it up in books and articles. This book was quite a different endeavor because it really was going back and looking at all of my notes, all of my documents, all of the recordings from not just ethnographic research, but just living, just visiting, seeing people, when my grandmother was alive, going there and seeing her extended family. And so one of the things that I reflect on in the introduction of the book is there's segments that were really, you could use the word researched. You know, I went out and said, I really want to know about this phenomenon. Who do I interview? Where do I go? Where do I hang out? And then there's stuff that I write about here that when I was engaging with it, I never thought this is research. This was spending time with my cousin. This was going where my family wanted to go or meeting up with friends. And it was later coming back and sort of reading through that material, which I did. This was my last sabbatical, so about three and a half, four years ago. I was really interested in spending that amount of time to 
grapple with Heidegger much more seriously than I had. I'd been reading Heidegger, but I felt I have a big chunk of time. I'm really going to devote myself to something that is so engaging and interesting. And as I was reading Heidegger, I kept thinking, but, but what if, but how does this fit with, and it was the Czech stuff more so than, you know, the work I'd done in Fiji that sort of kept coming to mind as both kind of evidence and illustration of some of the points that I was deriving from Heidegger, as well as a rebuttal. And that's sort of how, so it was very sort of organic. It wasn't like I had a research project and I thought I'm going to go look at Heidegger. I actually still remember the moment. I was in Prague and I was very unwell and I'd been reading Heidegger before I went on this visit and I arrived and I was you know, flat out and I could hardly engage in research. But every day I tried to force myself to do a, a little walk through the city. And that's when I started kind of piecing together. Heidegger says this, but this is the way things have played out here. And how might I use this? And that's where the book sort of was formulated in those walks through the city. So that brings me nicely onto my next question. You brought up Heidegger a few times. And in the subtitle of the book, you speak about this idea of life worlds, which is obviously very strongly linked to the phenomenological tradition. And you raise this only in Heidegger's work, but also in the work of the Czech philosopher Patochka. So I was wondering if you could say, what are life worlds? And how might there be sort of a productive interplay between phenomenology and ethnographic research? So I like the concept of life worlds, not only because it immediately signals phenomenology, but because it allows you to talk about individual and collective experiences of the world, but without delineating, you know, it has to be culture or it has to be historical. You can look at life worlds in different ways. So it could be class-based, it could be gender-based, it could be historical, it could be cultural, it could be a particular subculture, say gay and lesbian experiences of family life. So you can use it, I think, more malleably than culture, but it gets at many of the questions that we as anthropologists are very interested in, in terms of focusing on the experiential. So what are the lived experiences of people? How is meaning and knowledge created out of those? Where do they coincide? So you can speak of collective experiences and where might people's experiences diverge. I do have to say the subtitle was not mine. And this is a warning to any you know students who are thinking of one day their PhD thesis or such is going to turn into a book, which is you don't always get to choose the title or the subtitle. And I felt really pleased like because I came up with Traversing as the title and I felt really pleased when the publisher said, yes, the title is Traversing. Because I was used to in the past, and I know most of my um, colleagues speak of similar experiences, where you have a title that you love and it's not marketable. And so you go back and forth, back and forth in negotiation. So when they said, we'll take the title as Traversing, I thought, okay, that, that's all I really care about. The subtitle on the original manuscript was bodies, technology, and culture. And for me, what that did was it really highlighted the technological arguments in the book. And they hated that. And they came back with life ways 
in the Czech Republic. And I remember going, whoa, I haven't heard Lifeway since sort of reading Malinowski. Like, that's, <laughs> you know, you want to be marketable. I'm not sure that's the term we're going for. And so we bandied around a bit and we came up with this embodied life world. I think they wanted to highlight the ethnographic speaking to the philosophical while I was trying to highlight the way technology and trying to kind of bring it into sort of 21st century arguments around technology and culture, which I think the book still does, but they had a different sense of how to pitch it. But that's just a heads up if, you know, that there is a bit of negotiation sometimes in these things. So the other part of the subtitle of the book talks about embodiment, which is a key theme through quite a lot of your work. And traversing as a word sort of brings to mind these ideas of movement moving across types of distances. Throughout the book, there's this idea of free movements that are really sort of key, um, especially around the work of the Czech philosopher Patochka. Do you talk about these different types of movements and how sort of movement became caught up in the research method for traversing? Not sure it was the research method as much as reflecting back on it. So as I said, it's sort of 30 years of observation, some of which are very you know, research driven and some of which were not at all. And trying to put those in conversation with Heidegger. And then in reading Heidegger, trying to move out of Heidegger, looking at different critiques, one of which was the work of Jan Potocka, who I found fascinating in the sense of there were threads in Heidegger that Potocka really amplified. And one of the things he tried, or he, he does in his work, is to emphasize the place of movement in embodiment. And his argument is that, at least in being in time, if we look at Heidegger's landmark text, in being in time, there's a sort of iconic image of what is it to be in the world. And Heidegger talks about the man with the hammer, that being in the world is an active, agentive, you're using a tool, you're engaged in producing something. And Patochka says, actually, if we step back, we're not born as men with hammers. We are born as babes in the arms of those who take care of us. And so our first kind of engagement with the world is moving towards another, being in terms of interrelationality. And he talks about it as the sinking of roots, as the kind of development of self through you know, your relationships with your family and then more broadly in terms of you know, broader family relations and, and friends. And, and then the second step or the second movement for Patochka is being the man or the woman or the non-binary person with, with the hammer, right? Engaging in the world of work and endeavor and um, building a life. Life is a project. And then there's the third possible movement, which is looking beyond that looking at your place, moving towards an understanding of your place within a wider sphere, be it the world. And I think Patochka's writing 
and Heidegger's later writing and Havel, who was very much influenced by both Patochka and, and Heidegger, very much kind of embraced that idea of looking at yourself within the sort of global sphere. That's the third movement. And again, I never kind of structured the research around that. It was reading Patochka. I thought this is a really nice way of attempting to understand some of these movements that I've been tracing. But I didn't go out there and be like, okay, I'm going to study movement. It really was, you know, a series of different disparate projects and not projects, but life experiences that when I looked back on it, I thought, well, there's embodiment, but there's also something a bit more particular around it, which I find the concept of movement enables me to capture. And of course, this also raises the question of what happens when the opposite is in play, where for various reasons we're unable to move. So you mentioned at the beginning of this interview about how your family felt they wouldn't be able to return to the Czech Republic prior to 1989. So obviously Czech Republic was a Warsaw Pact nation with um, strict limitations on movement across borders. And currently, for very different reasons, we're both unable to sort of move and move around our cities um, in the way that we usually would. So Susanna and I are both recording in the same city in Tomaki Makoto, Auckland, but obviously from our homes. The sort of phenomenological and embodiment theories get these really great explanations of sort of how our life worlds and how our life projects are interconnected with movement. Um, so I was wondering, what can they tell us about sort of our experiences in lockdown and stasis? So I thought one of the really interesting things about lockdown was the awareness across so many people, so many people from different positions that may have not thought about this before, of the importance of movement. And I don't just mean, can I leave my house to go, you know, cross town, but physical movement. You, know, you had all these things like people staging, you know, Russian ballet company members staging ballet dances in their apartments or people running marathons on their balconies. And just this sense of you know, how movement is so integral to who we are. Now, obviously, there are populations that have experienced that. People who are confined in institutions, for example, um, people in prison or people in, I often think of the work of Sarah Pinto on uh, women in psychiatric wards in India. So, you know, it's a very privileged position to be in, to experience lockdown as a sort of crisis in the ability to move. But I think it brought to many of us you know, I would have thought, oh, that's fine. I'm mainly kind of think of myself as a intellectual person who likes to read and talk. And I was never into sport as a young person. So being confined to my house and I have quite a nice space with my family, I have a garden, that's not going to bother me at all. And the first lockdown, what really came home for me personally was just how important it is to leave that space and to be in the vicinity, it could be two meters apart, but to be in the vicinity of other people and to kind of experience. And, and I've been struggling to find a way to, to express it. And I keep coming back to Durkheim and the ideas of kind of collective effervescence, that there is a kind of affective, emotional something that is created by being in the presence of other people. And it's much harder to get that sensibility through things like Zoom. 
And I'm not saying that, you know, any kind of emotional connection is gone, but um, it's particularly when you have multiple people. So for example, I, when I was teaching on Zoom, even if people have their cameras on, even if they're engaging, you, that sense of a kind of collective emotional space when everyone is in their little postage stamp size window, it's just much harder to feel that. While if you're literally just walking down the street, you get a sense both you know, consciously and you know, without reflecting on it, that person looks really scared from the way they're holding their body, or that person is really going out of their way to be friendly. I think we saw that in the first national lockdown in Auckland, where people would walk two meters apart, other side of the street, they'd be wearing a mask, but they'd wave at you really like, hey, you know, I'm being super friendly here because I want to break down this sense of this barrier. So you get a sense of where other people are at. And I think that's what's really missing. I mean, some people might say it's running the marathon. Maybe that's just my individual. I don't mind. I can't do a marathon. But that kind of collective emotional engagement with other people where, again, I don't want to say it's it's gone because it's certainly not gone, but there are facets of it that are really missing when you can't go out into social life. Lockdowns and public health emergencies more broadly raise questions about a number of your other research interests. They require us to think about state-citizen relations, responsibility, public health, and how we frame and think about emergencies. Currently in Aotearoa, New Zealand, one of the requests from the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, for us to act as if we have COVID and to act towards strangers as if they have COVID. I was wondering how this lines up with your work on responsibility and how we might think about this as a specific type of responsabilization. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about theories of states of emergency and what our positioning here in this country, looking at the responses of our government, suggest about them. And one of the difficulties of this, just like when I was doing work in Fiji during the Fiji coup, is that it it is a moving terrain, right? So you think you have an analysis and then the political situation shifts or people's responses to the political situation shift. And so just this morning, because a few weeks ago, I was supposed to go to Victoria University and give a paper on COVID and citizen-state relations, and it got delayed. And now because of lockdown, it's being delayed again. I was actually looking at the paper going, in a few weeks' time, in like five, six weeks' time, can I give this paper or do I have to completely rewrite it? And I was thinking, because of the current lockdown situation and what's happening, I have to completely rewrite it. So what I say today, three or four months from now, I might say, no, it's changed (laughs) again. But my sense today is in this country, we can look at it in sort of three different moments. And the first was the first lockdown. And I've written quite a bit about what I think was going on in terms of affective relations between citizens and states. But I do think in that first national lockdown, there was a real emphasis on, you know, Jacinda Ardern was talking about, we all need to be kind. There was a real emphasis on sort of collective responsibility and responsibility for each other as a nation. And in fact, in some of the work that I've done with Nicholas Long at London School of Economics and Care and Responsibility Under Lockdown Collective, one of the things that we found was that when people broke Uh, lockdown regulations, 
it was usually, not always, I mean, sometimes people wanted to go surfing, but it was usually around a sense of responsibility for others, a concern for the welfare of others. So they were being forced to pit my obligation to the nation versus my obligation to my neighbor, my son, my lover, whoever who is not in my bubble, but is struggling, and I feel I have an obligation to them. And so people were, you know, really the people that, you know, we spoke to through the interviews and the uh, survey we did, which went out to over 3,000 New Zealanders, people were really thoughtful and sort of weighing up, you know, do I go help this person? But that's actually breaking the, the law. But the spirit of the law is that we try and, you know, combat COVID, but we also try and help each other as a nation. And different people in different positionalities um, had different ways of weighing these things up. But while the national and, and in many ways international media was about are people complying or are people not complying, we found there was much more kind of negotiation and weighing up of risk and weighing up of obligation. The people weren't just blithely going, oh, I don't care. And Part of that was because of the way the prime minister had set up that this was a collective endeavor. So we had things like teddy bears and windows, if people remember that movement. I'll note today, I went for a walk the other day, there are no teddy bears in windows. And what, 18 months ago, you walked through my neighborhood and in, you know it was every other house that had a teddy bear in, in a window. And I do think that is significant. But in between, there was the Auckland lockdowns earlier this year. And I think we had a different kind of affective tenor there, where we had a shift. The prime minister was still saying, be kind, but they were also saying, daub in your neighbor if you see them, you know, breaking the rules. And that's where I think we had the sort of shame game. Because if you remember, we had, at that point, we had very small compared to today, very small clusters um, across Auckland. And what the news was telling us was of these individualized accounts, you know, Case M goes to this university. He is the sister of Case N who got it by working at, you know, such and such. They didn't give names, but they just may as well have because we knew this person worked at this company on Wednesdays between these hours. He went to this school. His sister did this, you know, they gave so many details. And the prime minister, at one point she talked about, you know, somebody asked her, one of the reporters asked her, you know, some of these people have broken lockdown regulations and that's why COVID is spreading. Should we be arresting them and prosecuting them for breaking the law? And she said, we don't need to do that because the entire weight of the nation is resting on them, which really was a way of saying you should feel the entire weight of the nation. And if you don't, there's something wrong and galvanizing this sense of kind of collective shame. And I think that was quite a different moment. Well, whether people bought into that or not, but that was a different kind of affective enterprise. And then this is where I really hesitate because we're in the middle of it. But my sense in the last few days is that there's been a bit of a shift again and there's a lot more open, I mean, there was critique before, but there's a lot more open critique of the government, particularly around the vaccine program, um, but in other aspects as well. And so I think that now, um, I don't want to say the citizenry as if we're a block, but different publics within the nation 
are much more critical of the government's stance. And so where this is going to take us, I don't know. But all of it, to me, resonates with some of the work of the political theorist Bonnie Honig, who suggests that if we want to understand states of emergency, yes, states, governments do use them to manipulate citizens and to extend their power. And we've certainly seen that in the global pandemic. But in democratic societies, there's also the power of the people, the power of the populace. And I think we see that in the sort of teddy bears in, in Windows movement, where people were, you know, displaying to everyone else, we are here with you. We are collectively part of this enterprise. There was a different way that the citizenry was sort of activated around the blame game that happened earlier this year. And now I think different publics are moving away from kind of that collective spirit behind the government. Or another way of thinking about it is they're trying to press the government into taking different actions. So there is still a sense of we want to be in this together. We just want the leadership to lead us differently. And how that's going to play out, I think we're just going to see soon. So do we need to rethink the critiques of states of emergency? Yes, I think we do. Do I have at the top of my head at my fingertips a snappy way of saying what that critique should be? No, I don't, because I feel like it keeps unfolding. And it's fascinating to watch. It's terrifying to watch when you're you know, living through it, just like when I was in Fiji and we were watching the political coup unfold. It was both kind of conceptually amazing and more terrifying than the global pandemic for me personally. But where it will sort of take us in terms of scholarship, I think, still needs to be seen. But yes, I do think there is a space where we need to complexify some of these analysis that we have there. And that's just speaking from Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I've been doing a lot of work with Lisa Wynn, who's at Macquarie. And the latest paper we've been working on is a comparison of Australian responses and New Zealand responses. And that just keeps, every time I come up with some sort of theoretical thing, it just keeps getting thrown back in my face because it's quite <laughs> different in Australia. And then you start thinking, okay, so we worked together, we were editing a colloquy that just came out in cultural anthropology this month. So in there, we have people talking about South Africa, uh, Carolyn Rouse, uh, Lenore Manderson is t uh, and Susan Levine are talking about South Africa. Carolyn Rouse is talking about the United States. Tom Strong is talking about Ireland. Lisa's writing about Australia, and I'm writing about Aotearoa, New Zealand. And you start putting those different stories together, looking at kind of affect and ethics and state-citizen relations, and it becomes so much harder to try and come up with a kind of one-size-fits-all critique. One of the things that comes to mind here is this sort of idea about different publics engaging with the lockdown in different ways. One of the things that sort of struck me from the first lockdown was the way that iwi groups established their own checkpoints and essentially said, we don't share the same trust yeah. in the state to protect and enforce lockdown measures that maybe most Pākehā New Zealanders do. And so they sort of took matters into their own hand. And I think that sort of touches on a lot of what you say in the Anthropology Today article that you wrote, where so much of this is about not viewing the people who are plunged into states of emergency as overwhelmed, but instead as sort of agentive and 
capable of repurposing and rethinking these situations on their own terms as much as they are the states. Yeah, and I write about the EWI checkpoints actually in the cultural anthropiece that just came out. And I have a student who I was fortunate to supervise, Miriama Aoke, who just finished her MA thesis looking at Maori responses to the state's handling of COVID, who's done just an absolutely excellent job of looking at different positionalities within Maoridom on how the state has managed things. But yeah, that's precisely the point of trying to move beyond. And again, I think there's a lot of traction in the criticism of you know the, the original sort of Agamben take on states of emergency are deployed by states in very particular ways to shore up governmental power. I don't have a problem with that critique, but there's states and then there's nations. So what are the publics in those nations doing and how are they responding? And that's what I feel was missing in some of those iterations of the state of emergency critique. And I think now is a time that's really ripe for doing that kind of work, that ethnographic work this speaks back to some of the political theory by actually looking at how people are responding, be it through debates on social media, be it through kind of blame and shame, be it through putting a teddy bear up in your window. You know, if the prime minister says we should all do that, that doesn't mean that people are going to turn around and do it. There was something at that moment that meant not everybody, but a lot of people in New Zealand we're putting those stuffed toys and animals and things on display to show a kind of sense of unity. And fast forward 18 months, and I don't think she would dare ask people to put teddy bears in windows because, you know, how many people are going to actually, actually do it? So sort of returning to this idea of responsibility, and you sort of spoke about how lockdowns, this often brings different competing responsibilities to light ideas around staying at home and obeying public health orders or securing one's income. I was wondering, do you see a way in which this current COVID crisis has pushed the need to reconsider the classic liberal subject that notions of responsibility are typically based on? I think absolutely. And I think that's at the heart of the various debates and struggles you see in the response to COVID. Because there's nothing like a pandemic to raise those issues of what is your responsibility to yourself, to your family, to your communities, however you envisage those, and to the idea of a nation. And dare we say it, because we're so much looking at national responses to a sort of global sense of peoplehood, of, of belonging to a global community. And this is something in the book that I did with Catherine Trundle on competing responsibilities. We tried to critique Again, there's nothing wrong with the responsabilization concept or, or narrative, but to allow it to sort of carry the weight of how we think about responsibility in the 21st century seemed a bit narrowing of people's actual experiences. So we have all these neoliberal or advanced liberal discourses saying focus on yourself and the self as a project and what is your responsibility to yourself. And people engage with them in really interesting, productive and sometimes counterproductive ways. But people are also members of families, members of schools, members of churches, members of political activist groups, and they feel really deeply that they have obligations and responsibilities there. And in some ways, what that book or that collection tried to do was a really 
basic point of we can't allow responsabilization to overshadow these interpersonal responsibilities and these larger beyond face-to-face, the sense of you know standing up for your country. And I think this pandemic has really underscored that and the kinds of ethical and moral and political and economic debates that we're engaged in in some ways are about those competing responsibilities, those competing obligations, and where and when and how do we activate them in different ways. And where we're going to come out of this, um, hopefully with a sense that we need to revisit these questions, hopefully that idea of kind of the neoliberal subject who is, you know, focused on themselves and possibly their family, and that's sort of the extent of where their focus is, Um, are going to be eclipsed by these larger questions of how do we, uh, post-pandemic, if there is such a thing, how do we want to conceptualize these relationships? I think that's a fantastic point to leave our listeners on. It certainly gives them a lot to consider. So I'd like to thank you, Susanna, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was it, me and Susanna Trunker. Today's episode was produced by me, Joe Clifford, with help from the other familiar strangers, Alex Delloy, Simon Fearbold, Claire B. Jow, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Shan Lu, Matthew Fong, Jared Sim, and Ruanan Chen. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes slash dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>